Well, please take your Bibles and turn in them to John chapter 8. And we are going to read verses 12 through 30. John 8, 12 through 30. This will be our passage this morning as we continue to make our way through John's gospel. Let's read beginning in verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him, because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said to him, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where, am I, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, Many believed in him. Amen. It's a great temptation for people to approach God, to approach the Bible and its claims about Jesus as if they were the judge and that these things, God, Jesus, his word, must prove themselves to us. Whether intentional or not, that reflects a very arrogant and self-centered mindset. It treats God and his word and his son as if they craved our approval and acceptance and suggests that they need to prove themselves to us if they want to get it. It is true that God does call people to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, in his word written in the Bible, and even provides evidence for them in the Bible, 
which validates the claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But we should not mistakenly interpret this as God craving our approval, but should see it as God's gracious and merciful condescension to rescue and reconcile rebellious sinners to himself before they perish eternally. Because in the end, it's not our judgment of God and of his word or about Jesus that matters. What will matter in the end is how God will judge us through his son for how we responded to his word in the Bible. These truths, they really come out to us from this text this morning. In John 8, 12 through 30, we will see how the Pharisees arrogantly sought to pass judgment on Jesus only to have Jesus declare to them that they had no right to judge him, but instead they would be judged by God for how they responded to him. And in this way, this text really provides an attitude adjustment to every reader. It calls us away from arrogantly evaluating Jesus as if he needed to prove himself to us. And calls us instead to humble ourselves and recognize how God will evaluate us based upon how we respond to his son. So let's dive into the passage together and I want to show you what I mean. But before we do that, let me just take a moment to address what may be a burning question in some of your minds right now. Last Sunday, I preached John 7, 40-52. And today, here I am, starting up at John 8, 12-30. So what about John 7, 53-811? Well, if you look at those verses in your Bible, unless you have an old King James version, if you have one of the modern translations in your Bible, you're going to notice that those verses, 753 through 811, are marked off in some way. If you're using an English Standard Version, uh, they're going to be put in double brackets. And there's going to be a little explanatory note at the beginning, just before chapter 7, verse 53, that says the earliest manuscripts do not include John 753 through 811. Now, what does that mean? I want to give just a brief explanation for you this morning without getting too far into the weeds. In the the original manuscripts of John's gospel were without error because John wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But that original document that John penned no longer exists. What we have now is copies of copies of copies of the original. And there were errors committed in the process of making those copies. Now, the vast majority of the copying errors, not errors in the original text, but errors in the copies, are extremely minor. There are things like misspellings, missing or added words, etc., 
And only a very small number of them are really significant at all in terms of the meaning of the text. There's only a couple places in the New Testament, for instance, where one of these copying discrepancies in the manuscripts that we have affects a large chunk of text. One of them is chapter 7, 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. When the earliest English translations of the Bible, such as the the King James Bible, were written about 500 years ago, the translators who produced that English text only had a relatively small number of very late copies of the Greek New Testament to work with. And those copies that they used contained the verses that you see in your Bible, chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. However, over the last 500 years or so, we've discovered thousands upon thousands of more copies of the New Testament, New Testament manuscripts, which those early translators didn't have access to. And what we've discovered is that all of the earliest the most ancient and best, the highest quality manuscripts of John's gospel don't actually contain in them the text that's recorded in chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11. In fact, it doesn't appear in any copy of John until the 5th century. And even then, it was stuck into different places in John. Sometimes it was stuck into other books of the Bible, like in Luke. And often it had little marks in it, indicating that the scribe wasn't sure that this belonged in the original. In other words, there is disagreement on this subject. Some good scholars would disagree with the evaluation I'm putting here. But especially those who favor the older King James Version for a variety of different reasons. I would argue it's become fairly clear to most New Testament scholars that the story that's recorded in John 7, 53 through 8, 11 actually wasn't in the original text of John's gospel when he first wrote it. So while there's nothing wrong with the story, it may even be a true story about Jesus. It may be a very ancient story about Jesus. It probably isn't inspired scripture. That's why it's put in those double brackets in most of the modern translations. Now, I'm convinced of that, and so here I am. What do I do? I can't in good conscience preach that text as if it were Scripture because I'm convinced that it wasn't part of the original text that John wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. Those of you who do believe this passage is inspired scripture are free to continue treating it as such and are simply going to have to be merciful to me for skipping it here in my sermon series on this book. If you want to hear more about this whole issue, maybe this is the first time you're hearing about manuscripts and copies and I use the word error with respect to copies, what do I mean? I actually did teach an entire discipleship class on the text and canon of scripture It's available through our website. You can go and listen to that and get a more in-depth treatment. But for now, I'm going to go to where I think the inspired text resumes after chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, verse 52, I think here in chapter 8, verse 12. So, with that issue behind us, let's dive in. 
Remember, this is a section of John's gospel. I've said this before, chapters 5 through 10, which is often called the festival cycle because it, it features events that surround four different Jewish festivals or feasts. And each time in this section that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem in, to a feast, he clashes with the Jewish leaders and their hostility toward him gets greater. Now, the third cycle in this section began in chapter 7. We saw there that he went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Sometimes it's simply called Tabernacles. And he went privately at first. He kept a low profile for the beginning of the feast because he knew that the Jewish leaders there wanted to kill him. They wanted to arrest and put him to death. But then in the middle of the feast, we saw that he went into the temple where everyone was and began to teach the people. And even though the Jewish leaders sent officers, temple guards, to arrest him, God prevented it from happening, and Jesus continued teaching in the temple for the remainder of the feast. Now, the Feast of Booths, Tabernacles, it commemorated Israel's life in the wilderness when they lived in booths, tents in the wilderness after the exodus. And the ceremonies of this feast came to include ceremonies that involved water and light. And these two hearken back to the appearance of the light of God's glory and the water that he gave them out of the rock as they traveled through the desert. But I also pointed out that to the Jews who celebrated these feasts in Jesus' day, those ceremonies also anticipated a greater experience of God's blessing that was coming in the era of the Messiah that would come at the last times. Now, Jesus seems to have used the occasion of this feast with these water and light ceremonies to announce that he had come as the Messiah to bring these anticipated blessings to pass, these things which the ceremonies pointed to. So you remember I pointed out last time that in concert with this daily water pouring ceremony that went on at the Feast of Booths, Jesus, it says in chapter 7, verses 37 through 38, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink whoever believes in me. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the long-awaited Messiah, and I have come to pour out the Holy Spirit of God into the hearts of my people, to give them eternal life, to quench the thirst of their souls forever. Well, now, in chapter 8, verse 12, we read that on the same occasion, speaking against the background of the light rituals, which were part of the same feast, Jesus says now here in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, this is a wonderful statement. And I'm tempted to camp out here and just spend the whole time unpacking this statement. But when you read on in the Gospel of John, you see that this is just the first of two times that he talks about being 
the light of the world and uses this glorious I am statement. I am the light of the world. And it's really in chapter 9 when he returns to it and unpacks it in greater depth. And so as tempted as I am, I think what I'm going to do now is treat it very briefly and then we'll return to this I am statement in chapter 9. But suffice it to say, at this point, Jesus was standing up in the temple and proclaiming to the crowds that essentially he was the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament who had come bringing truth that gives life, that gives eternal life to the soul of anyone who believes in him. You remember how the ancient prophet Isaiah had said in Isaiah 49 verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, I am that light. Now the rest of our text, though, you notice is not primarily concerned with the content of that incredible claim, but rather the focus is upon the way the Pharisees responded to it. And this dialogue that Jesus has with them about their response. And so I want to focus in upon that issue this this morning. And the passage unfolds in two stages, really. First, in verses 13 through 20, the the Pharisees judge Jesus' claim, I am the light of the world, to be false. And Jesus explains that they're not really in a position to judge him in that way. So we read in verse 13 that in response to his really lofty, incredible claim to be the light of the world who gives life to people in darkness, it says, the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now here the Pharisees are recalling Uh, the old covenant law, and they're appealing to a principle of justice in the old covenant law to say that Jesus' claim is illegitimate. Now, the law that they're thinking of is the stipulation that in a court of law, a person who was charged with a crime could not be convicted on the basis of a single witness, but there needed to be two or more witnesses to confirm the truth of the charge and they're taking that principle of two or three witnesses and they're using it in a slightly different way to say that according to this principle Jesus's audacious claim about himself to be the light of the world couldn't be established as true because it's just his testimony alone and he didn't have any witnesses to it. He would have to provide, in other words, corroborating witnesses. Otherwise, they think they would have a right to say that his claim was not right. But Jesus rejects their logic. You see it there in verses 14 and 15. If you think about it, it may be the case that a single witness is not enough to establish a charge in court, right? And if you think about it, we're grateful for that principle of justice, But if you also consider it, that doesn't mean that the testimony of a single witness is untrue. Indeed, that single witness may have firsthand knowledge that no one else has. 
making them the only one capable of actually bearing witness to the truth. And this is the point that Jesus makes about himself here in verses 14 and 15. So in verse 14 he said, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and I and where I'm going. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the only one qualified to judge whether my claim about myself is true because I'm the only one with firsthand knowledge. The knowledge required to verify it. So, in chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus would say, I came from, my, from the Father and have come into the world. A little later on in history, the Apostle Paul would say of him, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. But no other human being was there to verify all of this. He is the only one with first-hand knowledge of existing with God the Father before his birth as God the Son, before entering into the world, being sent by his Father to become a man. Jesus says, I know where I came from and where I'm going. Now in concert with this, no one else was around when he received this mission from the Father to accomplish in the world. Only he knew what the Father had sent him in the world to do, unless he told them. This was something which took place within the mind of God. And no man or woman could verify it except the God-man, Jesus Christ. Certainly the Pharisees were in no place to judge the truthfulness of Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, the one who would come to give life to men. As Jesus would go on to say in verse 14, if you look there, he says, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. So when they said that his claim about himself was untrue, he's saying, look, you have no idea what you're talking about. How could you possibly know whether I have come from heaven? They couldn't. They were just mere men. He was speaking of things that only he had firsthand knowledge of. Besides, the standards that the Pharisees had been using to render judgments about Jesus, they were simply inadequate. And that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 15 when he says, you judge according to the flesh. In other words, they weren't judging Jesus according to standards which God had provided them in the Old Testament. When they judged Jesus, they were using man-made standards, the standards provided in their own rabbinical tradition. In fact, we saw this back in chapter 5. This is why they wanted to kill him, because he had healed a man on the Sabbath and told that man to pick up his mat and walk, but that was a violation of their Sabbath rules. So they said, he's a Sabbath breaker. Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh. You're using your own man-made standards. So the Pharisees were wrong to say that Jesus' testimony about himself wasn't true because he hadn't provided corroborating witnesses. He didn't need any witnesses. He was the one, the only one, with first-hand knowledge of his identity and his mission. 
And yet we do see that Jesus goes on in verses 16 through 18 to say that, well, in reality, he did have a corroborating witness. In fact, this is a theme throughout the gospel, the theme of witnesses that testify to Jesus' identity. And in the course of the gospel, Jesus is going to say that he has many witnesses. Uh, All told, in the gospel, you see, yes, seven of them identified in the book. But here he points solely to God the Father. So we read his words in verses 17 through 18. He says, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now Jesus doesn't specify here exactly how his Father bore witness about him, but We must say that when you read the book or any of the Gospels, you see that the miracles the Father gave him to do were perhaps the most important way that the Father bore witness to his Son. In fact, Jesus had said this back in chapter 5, verse 36. He said, The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, in verse 19, the Jews respond to this claim by saying, where is your father? Exactly who was Jesus referring to here as his father? They wanted to know. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. He points out that actually when they say that, they speak better than they know. They reveal something important about their heart. When they say, Where is your father? They end up revealing their lack of familiarity with him. God was his father. And though the Pharisees claimed to serve him, they didn't actually know him. Otherwise, they would have recognized his likeness in his son, Jesus. As Jesus went on to put it in the rest of verse 19, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, You would know my father also. Once again, Jesus exposed the Pharisees' inability to judge him. I mean, they're just lost when it comes to who Jesus is. He was God the Son, sent into the world by God the Father. The Father bore witness to this by the works of power and the words of truth which he gave to Jesus to do. As Jesus would put it in chapter 14, verse 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. But meanwhile, the Pharisees didn't know God the Father, and so they were in no position to render judgment regarding his Son, Jesus Christ. Indeed, what we see is that he was their judge. Jesus or John closed this little subsection with a little historical note there in verse 20. He says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now the treasury was probably that part of the temple where there were like 13 different chests and people would go in there uh, and put their offerings into one of these chests. In other words, this was a a bustling location, a place where a lot of people would be. It's right in the middle of all the action. And 
John mentions that Jesus said all these things right there, right in the middle of all the action where so many people were and yet remained unarrested. Why? He's implying it could only be because God as Father and his providence was protecting him from the intentions of evil men. But that brings us to the second stage of the passage, which we see unfolding here in verses 21 through 30. So having established that the Pharisees were in no position to judge his claims about himself, Jesus then goes on to say that, in fact, they would be judged by how they responded to him. They're not going to judge him. They're going to be judged by God for how they responded to him. So in verse 21, we see that Jesus began to speak to the Pharisees again. Now, we're not told how much time elapsed from the previous conversation he had with them, but probably this is the same occasion shortly after the first section that we looked at. And the key to understanding this section, I think, as I've reflected on it, is that Jesus is in no way Backing down from his claim to be the light of the world, he's speaking to these Jewish leaders as their Messiah, as the King and Savior whom God had promised to send to the Jews in the Old Testament, a light to the Gentiles. And in these verses, Jesus warns these Pharisees that a time is coming when he will leave and they will be separated from him. So you see, he says in verse 21, I am going away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Now he's speaking, of course, about his departure from the world back into the presence of of his Father in heaven by way of his death and resurrection. And, And these Pharisees would actually have a part in bringing that departure about. He indicates that down in verse 28 when he says to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, that is, when these Jewish leaders handed him over to the Romans to be lifted up upon a Roman cross to die. And once that happened, he's saying, you'll have no more access to me. That is, they would be cut off from their Messiah through their own rejection and murder of him. They would no longer have this kind of access to them where they could go to him and talk to them as they were doing now. That opportunity would have been squandered. As John solemnly put it in John 1.11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And why would these Pharisees be cut off from the Messiah in that day? Well, as Jesus told them in verse 23, he says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. So in their current condition, in other words, the Pharisees and Jesus belonged to different realms. They belonged to the world of humanity living in rebellion against God. And Jesus belonged to the kingdom of God. They were of this present evil age. Jesus was the ruler of the age to come. Their time was passing away. His time was even now breaking in like the light of a new day. And this is why Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot come. 
Whereas his disciples, those who believed in him, when they died, they would go straight to his presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Where they would await his return at the end of the age. But those who refused to believe in him, like these Pharisees, would be separated from him. And when they died, they would be cast into outer darkness, the darkness of hell, excluded from his presence forever. And this was not because the disciples of Jesus were so much better than the Pharisees, but because in rejecting their Messiah, the Pharisees forfeited the only hope of forgiveness available to men. And they were left guilty and condemned before God for their sin. As Jesus told them there in verse 21, he says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Or again in verse 24, you see, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I think of how the writer of Hebrews in chapter 7 through 9 of his magisterial letter, that's one of our New Testament books, he tells us that Jesus as the Messiah had come as the great high priest who offered himself up as a sacrifice, a once for all sacrifice to make full and final atonement for the sins of his people. As John the Baptist declared earlier on in our gospel, John 1.29, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those who believe in him are forgiven, washed clean from the guilt of their sins completely and finally. And they have access now to his throne of grace, straight through the curtain, straight into the holy places without hindrance. But those who refuse to believe in Jesus remain guilty before God, remain under the just sentence of eternal destruction for their sins. As John put it back in chapter 3, verse 36, he said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And what Jesus is saying here to these Pharisees is if you persist in your unbelief, you will die in your sins. And they will experience what Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 1.9 when he says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord forever. See, what Jesus was pointing out here, I think, to these Pharisees was that not only were they in no position to judge him, but they themselves would be judged by God for whether or not they believed in him. You see, in a twist of terrible irony, he was their only hope of escaping the judgment of God for their sins. And yet they condemned and rejected him. And this was all because of who he was. I want you to notice that explosive claim that Jesus makes about himself, which begins to emerge in our passage and then is going to come into full view at the very end of the chapter. So verse 24, look again. Jesus told the Pharisees, unless you believe that I am he, 
you will die in your sins. Now that phrase that's translated, I am he, in the Greek it's ego eimi. And it simply could be translated, I am. It's a mysterious, it's a somewhat awkward way to, for Jesus to refer to himself. Unless you believe that I am, that I am he, you will die in your sins. And you can tell that the Pharisees felt a little bit of the awkwardness of this way of referring to himself. Because look what they say in verse 25. Who are you? In other words, Jesus said, believe that I am, or I am he. They say, well, who are you? Indicating that his words had sort of left them hanging. And then he repeated it down in verse 28. He said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. There it is again, ego, I am he, I am he, or maybe even simply I am. Now, Jesus said many other things about himself in these verses. He called himself the light of the world. He said that he was the son of man, which is probably a reference to that messianic king figure in Daniel chapter 7. He also claimed to be the son of God in verses 28 and 29, who acts on the father's authority, who speaks words that the father had taught him, who always does what is pleasing to his father so that his father is always with him. Now, these are all remarkable claims, to be sure. But that line, ego eimi, I am he, or simply I am, it just takes it to a whole nother level. Because that was a title which Yahweh, the Lord, God, uniquely took to himself in the Old Testament. And you know, most famously in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where he said to Moses at the burning bush, Moses says, well, who should I tell Israel you are? And he says, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It's so grand and so sacred a title that we might rightly hesitate to think, is this what Jesus is really intending to ascribe to himself when he says this? But you know, by the time you get to the end of the chapter, you realize this is what he meant because at the very last verse of the chapter he finally said to the jews before abraham was i am and they picked up stones to throw at him to stone him to death for blasphemy so you see it's percolating to the surface they're like who are you ego amy i am I am he. And by the end, you see where he's getting at. See, the reason the Jews were in no position to judge Jesus, the reason God would judge them for not believing in Jesus was because as the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus was indeed the divine I am in the flesh, the God-man come down to earth. And as such, they were not his judge. He was theirs. In fact, Jesus says as much in verse 26. I have much to say about you and much to judge. You know, perhaps you're here this morning and you've not believed in Jesus because you've judged him and you found him wanting. Perhaps you're skeptical that he is who Christians claim because the evidence 
doesn't meet your standards of verification. Or maybe you feel that his teaching is wrong because it doesn't fit the moral standards of the day which you have accepted. If that's you, then what God is doing in this passage is confronting you with the true identity of Jesus and showing you that you are not in a position to judge his son. You know, he told the Pharisees that his testimony about himself was true because he knows where he came from. He knows where he's going. And he's the only one who has firsthand knowledge of these things. You certainly do not. I do not. As a tiny, finite creature, you're not in a position to judge his claims, nor does he require or need your confirmation. As for your moral judgment of him, as he told the Pharisees, you judge according to the flesh. That's, that is, you judge Jesus by man-made standards, standards of the world, which, by the way, are always changing. Someday, your kids will probably condemn you for the standards by which you are judging Jesus now. But his judgment is true because it's not him alone who judges, but he and the Father who sent him. Even as a sinner, the man-made standards that we adopt, they don't determine what's objectively right. And therefore, they really mean little. The only true standard of what is right is the perfect, unchangeable character of the God who made the universe. And by that standard, Jesus is entirely vindicated because he always does, as he says in our text, what is pleasing to his Father. I urge you, unbeliever, recognize your smallness. Recognize your corruption. Understand you are in no position to stand in judgment of Jesus and the claims that he made about himself. And instead, I would urge you to humble yourself before him. Read the scriptures with a heart that is hungry and desiring to know the truth about him. If you do that, then you'll find that as Jesus ended up telling the Pharisees, it's not as if Jesus made claims about himself for which there was no corroborating evidence. Indeed, there is an abundance of evidence which testifies to the truth about his claims to be the Christ, the Son of God. There's, for instance, the righteousness of his life, the truth of his teaching, the supernatural power of his miracles that he performed, the way he fulfilled ancient prophecies, his resurrection from the dead, to which many people bore witness. And all of these things testified to us in writing by people who knew him, who lived with him, who saw them firsthand in the first century and then wrote them down and they've been copied and copied and copied and preserved for us over time, passed down to us intact in the Bible. You know, the simple fact is, there is no event in ancient history for which we have more and better evidence than the birth, life, teaching, death, resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Indeed, it's difficult to comprehend if you stop and think about it, what kind of evidence a person could expect from an event which happened so long ago, which would be better than the evidence we have been given. 
If you do not believe in Jesus, the issue is not really a lack of evidence, but a lack of humility, which, like the Pharisees, is keeping you from reckoning honestly with the abundant testimony which does exist and accepting what it confirms about Jesus. I would urge anyone here who hasn't done so already to stop arrogantly standing in judgment of Jesus as if such a man required your approval and humbly seek to know the truth about him because it's actually you who need the forgiveness of sins and the eternal life which he alone can provide as the light of the world. And by the way, this is an urgent matter. Because if you do not believe in Jesus, then like the Pharisees, Jesus said, you will die in your sins. You will face the eternal judgment those sins deserve. Your only hope of escaping the judgment of God is faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in him to pay for your sins through his death on the cross. And the key question, therefore, that every man, woman, and child has to answer is not whether Jesus is right with us, but whether we are right with him. Our eternal destiny hangs upon it. As he put it, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. But believer, we're not out of the woods here. We too have to recognize that that enemy pride, it still lurks in our hearts as well. It's in our sinful nature, that remaining corruption. And so it always remains a danger for us to begin standing in judgment of Jesus when he doesn't do what we think is best or say what we think is right. When we're experiencing a terrible tragedy and we don't understand why it's happening when we endure hardship for a long time without any relief, when a persistent prayer goes unanswered for many, many years, when we suffer injustice at the hands of wicked people and they seem to go unpunished, when evil seems to increase and abound in the world while those who are doing right are oppressed, in these and many other circumstances, we as believers can be tempted to rise up in our hearts And stand over against Jesus, our King, and say, we think maybe we know what's better here. But let us be warned. Believers, that is a dangerous road to go down in your heart. Because it's pride and folly. You know, a sober reflection upon that kind of state of mind should lead you to say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you, O God. Believer, let us guard our hearts from the temptation to stand in judgment of our Lord And repent when we fall into it. Because the reality is, like the Pharisees, we just have no business judging Jesus. Small and sinful as we are. He has proven, by the way, sufficiently wise and good for us to trust him with what we don't understand. For us to respond to the things that trouble our hearts with what 
with the words of the psalmist in Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Let's remember, after all, we are not the judge of Jesus, certainly not. But instead, he is our judge. The Apostle Paul does say, 2 Corinthians 4.10, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus, after all, is the I Am sent into the world by the Father who does and speaks the words and works that the Father has given him, and he always does what is pleasing to God. So let us humble ourselves before him, that he may lift us up as he has promised. So for proud sinners, tempted to arrogantly rise up in our hearts and stand in judgment of God and of his anointed King, the Lord Jesus Christ, this text, John 8, 12-30, provides a helpful attitude adjustment. It reminds us that finite, fallen human beings like us are in no position to judge Jesus, but rather we will be judged according to whether we believe and trust in him. As Jesus put it in our text, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So, let us believe. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this gospel record of Jesus' life, inspired by your Holy Spirit, perfectly true, that we might read it and know the truth about Jesus And the words fall upon our hearts with such delight and awe that he is the light of the world who has come to give life to those who believe in him. That he provides us with living water. That he is the I am. That he is the son of man, your great king and anointed one. That he always speaks words and does works that you have given to him. That when we look at him, we see in him one who, unlike us, always does what is pleasing in your sight. He is everything to us. He is the one we need. He is our second Adam who obeys on our behalf with perfection. He is our substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. He is our anointed King who has risen in the body that he might always sit on David's throne and rule over all forever and bring righteousness and peace to the earth. We gladly believe in him. We gladly trust in him. Forgive us our pride, our foolish, foolish pride. Help us always to rest in him. We pray it in Jesus' name.